This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hello and welcome to the first episode in the next season of our Smarter Lawcast series concerning succession planning for blended families. My name is Juliet O'Brien and I'm a Senior Associate in Hall & Wilcox Private Client Practice based in Melbourne. In this season, we will be discussing estate planning for people living in a blended family. Depending on the family, managing the estate plan can pose some challenges. I would like to first start, though, with acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kula Nation, the traditional custodians of the land we are meeting on today. I recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people joining us. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Laura Hanrahan, a special counsel in our private client practice in Brisbane. We both have significant experience in assisting our clients with their succession planning, which can, as we both know, can often be a sensitive and very challenging process, made all the more challenging when dealing with a blended family. Laura, as you know, we are seeing a diverse range of of family dynamics these days, and the blended family is certainly more prevalent. More and more clients are really quite concerned about getting the right structures in place in terms of their planning. So probably the best place to start is to discuss what a blended family is. So I might hand over to you, Laura. A blended family is any sort of family where we've had a separation and there are children from previous relationships and current relationships. And they can come in all different forms. Yeah, thanks for that explanation. Yeah, the the way that family dynamics move these days, there can be any number of combinations. And and we're finding that clients come to us with lots of different variables across the the traditional family. And, you know, one of the things that we're finding too is that, that they'll come and want to talk about family assets or generational assets and the the desire to keep them within the family group and how best to provide for the new partner, but how to quarantine those assets. And quite often that follows into a discussion about family companies and family trusts. And one of the things we say up front is that uh, when assets are sitting in a trust, they are distinct from the individual's assets. So they're not dealt with under the terms of the will what we need to think about is to to look at the the terms of the deed and make sure we put the right people in control of the trust. So quite often that'll be um, the the children, if there's adult children or an independent person or any combination um, of different people, but to to make sure that that those assets are actually there for the benefit of the family group as opposed to the new relationship. One thing that we're finding more and more, Laura, um, is that when we're dealing with blended families, estate disputes come up and the possibility of having a challenge to a will. Um, I know in, in my own practice, we're seeing a lot of estate litigation these days. So do you want to just comment on, on what you're finding? Yeah, absolutely, Juliet. I agree. There's been a, a very marked increase in challenges to estates and and unsurprisingly, a large proportion of those disputes involve blended family arrangements. And just as a bit of background, when we talk about estate challenges, what we're typically referring to is a family provision application. And there's only a a small group of 
people who are eligible to make those applications. But in blended family scenarios, the numbers of people eligible to make a claim can be increased because you've got a current partner, you might have a former partner who is also still eligible, and you'll have children from multiple relationships. So it's important when doing the estate planning to make sure that you're doing the estate planning with the idea that doing the estate planning properly will avoid expensive litigation. So when we're considering blended families and estate planning for blended families, one of the most important um, considerations is how someone might provide for their current partner. Juliet, have you got some ideas about how that's done? Uh, yeah, thanks, Laura. Look, there there are quite a few different ways to provide for a current partner. Uh, one of the one of the most common ways is to um, look to the way that assets are are held in terms of the type of ownership, and what we typically say to clients is that if you want to make sure um, the family home, for example, passes to your um, your new partner or your existing partner. Uh, perhaps think about owning it as a joint tenant because anything that you own jointly or as a joint tenant with another person passes automatically to that person upon death. It doesn't even come into the under the terms of the will um, and it is, isn't divided under the terms of the will. So if you own the family home as a joint tenant uh, with your partner, that asset will pass automatically to them. The same being with shares or bank accounts, any asset that is held in that way will pass automatically. So it's a really convenient way to, I guess, quarantine that asset and make sure it ends up in the new partner's hands. Conversely, if, if you didn't want the asset to pass to the, the, the current partner, you wanted to make sure it passes to the children, perhaps think about owning it in your own name and pass it under the terms of your will to them. The other way to deal with it is to perhaps own, own an asset as a tenant in common um, with the partner so that that means that you can at least deal with that 50% share, for, for example, and, and pass that to your children under your will, and then the partner still retains their 50% share. A couple of other mechanisms we look at are life interests in property, giving a partner a life interest, um, so that if there was to be a, the survivor, the, the, the will maker says, look, I, I own the home, I want to make sure it ends up with my children, uh, but I do want to provide for my current partner, um, they might think about giving a life interest in that property to the partner, which um, which is, is given under the terms of the will, and it permit, permits the, the partner to use the home um, as if it were their own during their lifetime, but, at, but upon their death, it passes under the terms of the will maker's will, and it can end up with their children, for example. Another um, another mechanism we use is that the right to occupy, which is a, which is also included in the will, um, and it would permit the will maker to be actually able to say, I'm going to permit my my current partner to live in my property, uh, to occupy the property during their lifetime, or until such time as they vacate, or perhaps until such time as they find enter into a new relationship, um, at which time. Uh, the right to occupy comes to an end and it will pass under the terms of my will to the ultimate beneficiaries, which quite often are the children. Laura, one other convenient way to provide for a current partner or for particular beneficiaries is through 
death benefit nominations um, with regard to superannuation and life insurance. I know you've got a particular experience with superannuation, Laura, so perhaps have you got anything um, you'd like to add that might be useful in terms of the blended family and superannuation? Yes, super is another asset which is as you've said with property, Juliet, it's important to understand the ultimate ownership and what effect that has on the estate plan. And superannuation is no different. It's really important that will makers understand that superannuation doesn't automatically form part of their estate and that there are nominations and that there are steps that they can take during their lifetime to ensure that their superannuation is paid to the beneficiaries that they want it to be paid on their debt. And, and, and Laura, how how do you make a nomination? What, what's the mechanism to be able to do that? It depends on what sort of superannuation you have. And so it, it will ultimately, the nomination will take the form that's determined by the fund itself. So if you have a self-managed fund, your trust deed of your self-managed fund will have rules around making a binding death benefit nomination. And if you're a member of a retail or an industry superannuation fund, then the rules of that particular fund will govern the, the form of the, the binding death benefit nomination. And the other piece of the puzzle with superannuation is life insurance. Quite often people will own life insurance inside their superannuation and it's just simply important to understand whether you own it in your super or whether you own it outside your super um, and then what effect that has on how it will be paid on your death. But using the binding death benefit nominations or using nominations on life insurance policies is another great mechanism for blended families to be able to ensure that benefits are paid in the way that is required, that is to the surviving spouse, if that's the plan, or to adult children, if that's the plan. And I guess we'd, we'd remind people to also get some good advice regarding taxation at that point, because there certainly are different uh, consequences for leaving superannuation to different parts of the family. Uh, and you'd want to get some tax advice around that, which we can certainly help with um, around which is the most, even though you might have certainty with, with, with regard to the way super might pass, it might lead to uncertainty with regard to tax and vice versa. So they'd want to get some good advice around that before they decide what sort of nomination to make. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think that feeds very well into the, the next estate planning strategy, which is testamentary trusts, because one of the huge drivers of using testamentary trusts um, is the great tax benefits of doing so. How would you use testamentary trusts for blended families? Oh, thanks, Laura. Look, they're a really useful uh, way to be able to set aside a certain amount of the estate um, for particular individuals. Uh, so they, they act like any other trust. The difference is that they're actually set up in the, in the will and uh, they only come into existence after a person's died. So they're not a trust that works during the lifetime, but they enable someone to set aside part of the assets for uh, as in, in a trust uh, 
for certain people who would be the beneficiaries of that trust and also determine who is in control of that trust. So if, you know, quite often we have a willmaker who may come to us and say, look, I really want to provide for my partner, but I've got some real concerns around them remarrying and perhaps remarrying and my assets being dissipated. Um, I want to make sure that they're being they're, they're there for the use of my partner and perhaps my children. I don't want them um, going or ending up in the hands of a new partner and perhaps their family. Um, how do I deal with this? So a testamentary trust is a is a really good vehicle to be able to say, right. We're putting funds into a trust. The spouse and the family members who are to benefit will be the beneficiaries of that trust, but we may put the spouse and someone else in control. Um, we may put a, an independent trustee in control so that they are in, so that there is a check and balance there on the spouse's use of the funds and their administration of the trust. So we're finding more often than not that we're building testamentary trusts into wills these days, particularly when we've got blended families. And I think another great advantage of a testamentary trust, particularly in a, in a blended family situation, is the ability to have different classes of beneficiaries for capital and income. I think it's a fantastic strategy um, and you know, quite beneficial to be able to protect the capital of family or generational assets for the bloodline generation, but have that existing or surviving spouse be able to benefit from the income generated from that capital asset during their lifetime. Yeah. And we couldn't quite often also prepare a document which sits alongside the will called the letter of wishes, which is not a binding document, but it is certainly a, a morally um, morally binding document, we like to say, that sits alongside the will. And that can really flesh out what that income might be able to be applied for. So if there is a current partner, we might be able to say things along the lines of to assist them or to provide for them to continue to live in the manner in which they've been accustomed, to continue to pay for their medical costs, you know, their, their um care and accommodation, whatever it might, whatever you might like to include in that document, but that can be a really useful adjunct to the will. Laura, I know you've got particular expertise with mutual wills, and that is something that we will be talking about in one of the further podcasts in this series, but mutual wills also are a really good way um, to provide for a blended family or in, to use in the succession planning for a blended family. So I might just um, get you to give us a bit of an introduction to those and um, just talk about what what the the main advantage might be in the family in the blended family context. Yeah, it's really interesting because the 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 law about mutual wills is very very old, originating in the 1700s, and so has a really long history. But it's interesting that it's now used quite commonly in in our modern blended family situations which is obviously not its origins. Um, in essence, a mutual will is when two people agree to make wills on the same or similar terms and that those wills be irrevocable, meaning that neither party can make a change to their will without the consent and agreement of the other party. So providing that protection for those, you know, generational or, or family assets again. And we'll talk more about that in a, in a future episode. Yeah. Thanks, Laura. Um, well, look, thanks, everybody, for listening today. 
As always, please get in touch with us if you've got any questions and, and you can find our details on our website, which is www.hallandwilcox.com.au or connect with us or Hall and Wilcox on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, then rate, review or follow our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.